This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Omniverse. The Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program is for mature audiences only. This episode contains discussion of violence, emotional abuse, murder, gore, violence towards household pets, sexism, misogyny, and abduction. Please listen at your own discretion. If you find our Stygian story simply scintillating, unlock further secrets at patreon.com slash omniverse media and cthulhumystery.com slash support. Sunset has come, and the world has grown cold. Deep in the dark woods, a host is foretold. Spirits are gathering, wrapped in hoarfrost, waiting to claim what in life they had lost. And the midwinter darkness descends on the land, as they wring bony fingers and raise bony hands. If you dare to go walking at night, understand that there's danger in heeding their ghastly demands. But to walk on those lands is not part of your plans. (laughs) Not a part. Not a part of your midwinter plans. A yule log you've dressed up with wishes and wax. You've stuffed cinnamon sticks and herbs in the cracks in the bark of an ash tree you fell in the fall, which you light with a disc from the yule logs before. Now, outside, the darkness grows thicker, like soup. And from deep in the woods comes a sound as the troop of midwinter spirits sing midwinter songs. The darkness is deep, and the darkness is long. Oh, those songs, those songs, oh, those terrible songs, sung by throats that make notes that are haunting and wrong. You give thanks to your gods that your windows are strong. Then the blistering wind, with a blustery gust, descends down your chimney, and ashes and dust come billowing out of your fireplace hearth, and your yule log is frozen as cold as the earth. And no coaxing, nor praying, nor oil, nor spark can relight the fire once its flame has gone dark. Around you teems laughter of ghouls from the wood, 
who believe they have found their way inside for good. This night is the longest, the longest one yet, and in darkness thrives what humankind would forget. We've snuffed out your lights, and we've only begun. With our midwinter magic, we'll swallow the sun. The ghosts fill your home with their echoing calls, but the dark is so deep you see nothing at all. As you carefully feel your way along the wall to a candle you keep at the end of the hall. You've only one match left. You've saved it for this. You strike it and fire flares to life with a hiss. You scarcely can breathe as the wick takes the flame, while around you the undead host cries out in pain. Chased from your home by the flickering light, the spirits of Solstice retreat out of sight. In the midwinter darkness, a single flame burns, lit for the promise of daylight's return. A charming and chilling poem for the Yuletide, which now hangs heavy upon us. Written by friend of WYS, Dr. Teresa Jean Tannenbaum, who so kindly agreed that I could share it with you tonight. I thought it a perfect way to both usher in and celebrate the longest night, and also to preface our presentation of this evening's installment of the Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program's Cthulhu Cthomentary Arcane Advent. Last week, we heard them experience the Lovecraftian cinema classic Reanimator, and this week, series showrunner Cat Blackard, Keeper Luke Stram, and Omniverse's Doug Banks return to discuss its direct sequel, Bride of Reanimator. What's more, they've brought with them special guest Jared Pope, Mystery Program's principal character illustrator and artist for the series' forthcoming role-playing modules. All gathered together to answer the question, can the return of rogue medical scientists Drs. West and Kane measure up to their first feature film foray? Let's find out. Do you hear that? In the cruel blackness of night, an unknowable evil from beyond time cries out. What? Dark deeds unfold on the streets of Arkham, and which unwitting souls, innocent or impure, will succumb to the maddening call, the call of Cthulhu. Welcome to Cthulhu Cthomentary. Hi, I'm Kat. Hi, I'm Luke. Hey, I'm Doug. And with us today, we have a special guest. Hey, it's Jared, everyone. Now, if you are listening to this episode in the moment that it came out, Jared's voice associated with the Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program might be an unknown. However, Jared is what is to be a recurring character throughout <laughs> the course of future Cthulhu installments, so look forward to that. Wonderful. When you hear it, you'll know those dulcet and mysterious tones. Dulcet honey tones. <laughs> <laughs> Aside from having been a longtime force throughout all of our nerdy show productions of various kinds, what other things should people know about you? Just keep following my Instagram. Oh, I'm yeah. At Sketchforge, all one word, and just check out what I throw out there. Cool. Yeah. Yes. You will like what Jared throws out there. Oh, yeah. Jared throws out some very delicious and dreamy things. Thank you. Thank you. So, in this episode of Cthulhu Cthomentary, we are talking about the 1990 film Bride of Reanimator, which none of us have seen. Not till today. Not till today. Let's start with our initial uh, reactions, beginning with you, Luke. Well, it delivers on its promises, I guess, and to a degree. What are its promises? To be a sequel to Reanimator that is inexplicably <laughs> brought back uh, Herbert West. 
Although I guess like you don't actually see him die at the end of uh, the original. It's kind of more the same with some new uh, additional grotesqueries and uh, just a little sloppier this time around. <laughs> Both in terms of the story and Wes's methods. Yes, that's true. <laughs> this sequel came a full five years after the first one and is written and directed by a man who produced the prior film, Brian Usna. And uh, also there's two other writing credits, um, two fellows who have some notable work alongside of uh, Yuzna, Woody Keith and Rick Fry. Now, we'll get into the actual like production-y things a bit, a bit later, but it's important to note that this is not part of the Stuart Gordon Lovecraft film material. Gordon at one point was attached to maybe work on this, but, uh, but that didn't end up happening. And I said in the last episode regarding Reanimator that I'd figured out I only have a little bit more info, not much at all. Doug, now uh, you and I both saw Reanimator for the first time yeah. in the last episode. How do you feel about uh, about Bride? Like Luke says, it, it delivers on the promise, really. Unfortunately, it sets up a lot of things that you're expecting to pay off, and then the movie just kind of ends really suddenly. Like with Dr. Hill and uh, Herbert, you think like, oh man, these two are going to fight. They're going to something. And Dr. Hill just sort of shows up at the end and is just like, I hate you. <laughs> like, And then the movie ends. Like there's no actual confrontation really. Um, there are a lot of functional pieces. And you think this is going to stitch together so nicely, just like all these corpses. Yeah. And but, it- <laughs> but then it falls apart like the bride, you know, yeah. it, it, like it, it's, it's a big metaphor. you like, because then you're like, oh, it's like the first movie. But you're not the first movie. What did you want? <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, it's, it's it's strangely a fitting metaphor for the film for itself. itself. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I there was many parts were still very enjoyable. Um, it has the same crazy character stuff that the first one has. So I mean, if you enjoyed the first one, I think the second one's definitely worth checking out. You're, Don't expect you're, it to be. You're as, gonna enjoy yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just, you, you definitely didn't come here for the continuity. <laughs> right. 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 Uh, so uh, other than other than the ending, the, like the literal ending of it being fairly weak um i very much enjoyed myself how about yourself jared well it's been about a decade since i've seen the original reanimator film so a lot of the details are fuzzy <laughs> that's best i would imagine <laughs> probably <laughs> but but having seen this film i'm like okay yeah yeah they just picked up where they left off that's 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 all fine and good it was definitely a um fun weird romp and i i enjoyed it one of the best like practical effects wizards, uh, Screaming Mad George, had had thrown his hand into doing some of the creature designs in, in this film, and it was just chef's kiss. Now, what would folks know Screaming Mad George from? So he, he is uh, any weird shit from the 1980s period, he's probably had his hand in. So uh, probably most notably is Big Trouble in Little China. He was, it was a practical effects wizard on that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, I... I've seen the I've seen the film Society. Um, I've been trying to get uh, other people to like join in on on the madness for it. You've been talking a big game about Society. Yeah, it yeah. sounds and looks pretty cool, and it is part of the sort of continuum of Bride of Reanimator. It came out the year prior, mm-hmm. and it is written and directed by the entire same team. That's mind blowing. <laughs> <laughs> why why is it mind blowing particularly? I don't know, it's just just the same uh just the the same group of people putting together just this this wild ride of 
I don't know how to really describe it in words. I'm, I'm not much of a wordsmith. <laughs> well, in regards to the, the two films, like you've talked about society a lot. Yeah, yeah. I would imagine society greatly outclasses Bride of Reanimator. Mm, oh, that's, interesting. That's mm-hmm. a good question. Like, it's it's like comparing apples to oranges. Really, just the 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 meat is there, but there's just how you sculpt the meat in, uh, in between mm-hmm, these mm-hmm. two films is completely different. Yes. It's important to be very careful when you're sculpting the meat. Yes. Otherwise, it will reject itself. Yes, exactly. Um, (laughs) So I think between the three of you, that's really encompassed a a, a great deal of this experience in a broad overview. Let's get into some nuance here. So in terms of the adaptation of the reanimator series of short stories by H.P. Lovecraft, this sort of, kind of, borrows from some later chapters of that. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I caught in this, uh, it's kind of repurposed and used in a different way, though. When the detective wakes up after being reanimated in this, one of the things he says is like, get that cloth away from me. And that actually, that's basically taken directly from the stories. Mm. It's one of the few things that kind of is. So and that's, the, the cloth in question is a kind of chloroform-like substance yeah. that stops the human heart. Yeah. In the story, that's one of the areas where like the unnamed narrator, basically the Dan of the, sh- of the story, kind of realizes that Herbert is a bit more sinister than he's kind of realized at first. Mm. And I mean, that's an element that doesn't really exist in the movie as much because he's more of, we're, I don't want to say, for him. I don't want to, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to say he's an anti-hero. Regardless, yes. he, he's, 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 a, he's, a, he's a weird little flesh goblin and uh, you root for him anyways. Yeah. But in the story, uh, his intentions are so single minded, the audience <laughs> tends to regard them as pure, whether they are or not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in, in, in the story, um, at, at one of the points uh, along the way, Herbert's got this super fresh body and Herbert's like, yeah, yeah, craziest thing happened. So this guy came up to like, you know, look around the neighborhood and talk to me and everything. And just, he just, he just passed out and died of a heart attack. It's the craziest thing. Super fresh body though. May as well use it. Come on and help me assistant. And so they reanimate the body. And that's, that's the thing that comes out of the body's mouth is, you know, basically like, ah, get away from me. Get that cloth away from me. Right. And so like, yeah, Herbert West basically ambushes and kills some uh, uh, visitor to his house. And in this context, you know, it's the cop that's trying to kill him first. And uh, I guess as they're fighting with him later, then uh, Herbert's put two, two and two together about his wife. And, uh, and he's a, uh, a domestic abuser. And I guess uh, Herbert West said ACAB. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that part of the story, which we'll get into momentarily, is actually really interesting. And much like Herbert moving over the bride from toes to, to top, like talking about where the different pieces came from. The different pieces of this movie are all very compelling. It just kind of gets rickety eventually, but even still, it finishes up so quickly, you don't really have time to reflect on how rickety it's gotten. (laughs) (laughs) Originally, when Stuart Gordon was going to do something with it, there was uh, an intention of making this, this film about Dan wanting to reanimate Meg. And... That is kind of a component of this. Obviously, this is a film about Dan and Herbert making a woman out of parts. And Meg is sort of a component of that, but it's not like literally Meg. And uh, Barbara Crampton did not come back for this film. 
I was going to be a bit part, and her agent was like, you can do better. Herbert dangles that in front of him as, as like, she'll be back. It's, it's Meg's heart, so therefore, and doesn't like flat out say it. You know, I mm. guess plausible deniability to be like, well, I never really said she'd be back, you know, but uh, Dan fills in the blanks and is like, so she might be alive again. And he is hook, line and sinker that, after that. That's a big that's a big moment, really, in the yeah. narrative of Herbert and Dan, because in this film, we see their relationship go to some like, it was already a little bit skewed. But it goes to some places of like legitimate abuse. And that's that's right there at the epicenter of it. That moment is. Dan has finally had enough. He says he's moving out. And in that moment, Herbert's like, oh, no, my sweet, beloved Dan is moving out. Good thing I have plan B. Like, yeah, <laughs> like, let me dangle something in front of him, something he, he wants really badly. Hands, he's holding it in front of him, like, like yeah. baiting him into, like, staying. Like, wait, Dan, I love you. Let's have a child. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And that's like, it is so on the nose in that way. It's pretty delightful. And also, poor Dan, you... <laughs> are helpless and so abused uh and herbert i don't think he's aware of his his abuse but he is just doing everything he can he's, he's, to maintain the ends justify the means is all he ever can can think yeah well it, it yeah it's like both herbert has his own things and the only other thing that he possibly cares about besides the work is he wants dan to be happy he wants Dan to be happy with him yeah. together in that house. Yeah. But he does want Dan to be legitimately happy. <laughs> yeah. Because he would protect him. Like, he's gone out of his way to protect Dan. So it's yeah. like, I think that's literally the only piece of humanity that Herbert has where we still are like, oh, he's riding that line where he's not quite full supervillain. You know? Dr. But, West, you do have a heart. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I think I think that's probably one of the things where... These two movies have a lot more going on than the short story with that kind of a relationship that, that makes them pretty compelling yeah. with their characters. And I think why people like them so much. I would like to see these same two characters in almost any situation. You know, I mean, like it starts with them. I was even thinking like, oh, man, I would love to see what vacation with them is like. And this movie begins with them <laughs> in like Peru in the jungle. Like, you know, like, this would be their vacation, wouldn't it? Just like, you know, all these working on all these bodies and sewn up soldiers and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I guess let's let's confront a, a brief plot outline, though. It's it's not going to be too brief because there's a lot of pieces here. But uh, it starts, I believe, what eight months later. Yeah. yeah. They are thousands of miles away. Yeah. Like eventually, you can sort of determine that it's Peru based on some loose context. But gosh, it gets a little bit messy. So they're in the jungle. They're in a field hospital in the middle of a civil war, and uh, they're still doing experiments on the fly. Eventually, I guess whatever. Uh, rebels resistance who knows um, they're working for uh, i wouldn't put it past them for working for either side that all shining path gorillas probably <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all of that falls apart and there's there's a woman there who francesca yeah francesca who at first uh in that based on that scene i would assume was not going to come back is not important you know and, and they, gave, they gave her a name so i'd assume she was going to come back somehow or at, at the very least i would also assume that she's probably from the country that this scene takes place in however i'm wrong on all counts yeah but uh more on her in a moment if that whole thing falls apart they go back to miskatonic university they get a cute little house out near a uh, cemetery <laughs> is it not supposed to be the same house from the first? No, oh, no, no, no. no, no. Okay, because I, I was trying to figure that out while we were watching it because, it, we, you know. We uh, missed a detail where they, they brought back a specific iguana back for yeah. the experiment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was a really weird a really weird note during a very chaotic scene yes. of like, hey, a, an iguana has appeared. Okay, we got to leave, but shit, we need to take this iguana with us. <laughs> Alive. You know. yeah. yeah. And like, I'm like, that's that's going to be easy. That's a, that's, a, that's a pet store iguana, pal. Like, yeah. what? why? 
Maybe it's the specific genus that lives in this particular jungle. I don't know. They, they they don't say. Yeah, there's there's a, there's a little bit of a detail bit later. I don't know if I don't know if it actually reveals anything. There's some kind of like they gave like a proper name for the species of iguana, and I don't know if it was made Probably up made or not. Up, um, they they did actually, and if I remember correctly, it's not Peru, which is where they definitely were. For <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. I think that kind of fits in with the slapdash aspect of this whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so inexplicably, they're both back to being at Miskatonic University Hospital as full-fledged doctors. And uh, eight months later, there are still repercussions from what they call the Miskatonic Massacre, the events at the end of the first film. There's this detective that, like, for some reason is like, he's still got the case open. He's found uh, Dr. Hill's head who is apparently part of a freak show carnival, this like so, sort of like slightly animated head or something. Uh, they don't go into details about it. And apparently it's a scene that was, that was filmed um, and uh, no one has it anymore. There's like stills of it, but no, one's, no one has any details on what happened with that. Well, and it's kind of a callback to uh, one of Wes's insults in the, uh, uh, in the climax of the first movie where Hill's talking about like as, as just like the headless Hill is like talking about like his plans or whatnot. And, and, and Wes is like, who's going to believe you? Get a job in a freak show. <laughs> so I guess he did. And uh, <laughs> and then he ended up uh, in a plastic bag uh, getting reunited with all the other parts from the massacre that are still being kept by Dr. Graves, who has a kind of weird obsession with it, but also is like being really secretive for reasons we don't ever find out. He's kind of a weirdo, you know, just kind of like a lot of uh, a lot of doctors in, in these movies are. They're just a little weird. I mean, it is Arkham <laughs> after all. Yeah. Herbert's been stealing body parts. They've got a really cool basement in this house that used to be um, the mortuary for the cemetery. They've got materials. They've got a, a wall that's butting up against a crypt that Herbert likes to throw things into when they don't work <laughs> out. And it, it's a pretty nice setup for, for two lads to do their very important experiments. But for no apparent reason, uh, Francesca shows up again. She says she's got to do some stuff in Boston. And it turns out she's Italian, but was in Peru as a mercenary, I guess. I'm not sure. I assume it's some kind of like, you know, medicines sand frontiers kind of thing. Like, yeah, because she did know the doctor's, doctor's names. Yeah. Like she was working with them and mm. was like, we have to get you out of here. And uh, I mean, she didn't appear to be shooting people as much as trying to get them out. I don't know. Yeah, it, it, was, it was a lot was happening. Oh, really yeah, quickly. it was it was it was loose. So there's some reagent amongst the body parts and Dr. Graves starts playing around with the bits and pieces. He reanimates a bat. Then he decides to reanimate Dr. Hill's head. And then we sort of forget about that plot for a while. Which is a shame because like he chews the scenery so majestically. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, the one of the weirdest things about what happens with the Dr. Hill plot is that the movie literally opens first thing you see is a disembodied head of Dr. Hill, like breaking the fourth wall, kind of talking at Herbert West, swearing vengeance. Like an, an almost like a dream sequence, mm -hmm. except it's not. Yeah. It's very strange. And I don't know why it was there. I guess to remind you. I guess. So that when that head shows up, you don't just think something like, oh, yeah, it's dead or whatever. You have the feeling that it's coming back. It makes me wonder if this movie was as Frankenstein as the things inside the movie. Yeah. But I actually but I, there, no one really was writing about there any kind of production trouble. So I don't I don't really know. So this police person ends up being kind of a problem, but for very interesting reasons. There are three remaining reanimated corpses from the massacre, and they've got them in the hospital in in a like a room 
And uh, people, people call them survivors, yeah, because they don't know what's really going on with them. Yeah, but they do know that they did. They did all come to the hospital as corpses. Yeah, and they they, they of course don't believe that they are reanimated corpses because that's impossible. And one of those people is his wife, and that's a really interesting motivation for this police officer to have taken. Because you're watching the film for quite some time before you realize, oh, this guy actually does have skin in the game. That, and he's also definitely breaking the rules because something important is personal for some reason. Right. Yeah, yeah. He's He, he, do, he does a lot of uh, uh, deeply uh, uh, off-the-rails yeah. kind of stuff, yeah. busting into people's houses and... <laughs> <laughs> no warrant, no nothing, you know. But 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 you get it once he reveals that his wife is one of the victims of of that. However, as Luke already implied, it's complicated. Basically, Francesca and Dan sort of pair off, and Dan wants to leave Herbert because Herbert's being a real weirdo and like glues together a bunch of fingers and an eyeball and is like, "Look, I can like he I made life." He says this thing when he's like insulting Doctor Hill's disembodied head talking about how every body part has some degree of consciousness attached to it, which allows him with this new reagent of the amniotic fluid from the iguana um, <laughs> is somehow some special thing. Primordial yeah, he, glands. <laughs> so there's like a new version of the reagent that makes that means you can take independent parts and stick them together. To create new life. Yeah, yeah. new not, life. Not, and not, not just reanimate old life, but make new. And that they don't necessarily go into it but they do imply quite a bit that that implies that that crazy knowledge really does take Herbert into the realm of super duper mad science. Like he is, he becomes obsessed with the new things he can do and does them way more than the rest of the film even implies up until the very end. Looking to get out of the ads and back to the story? Fable and Folly Plus is a new way to support the creators you love. The podcast you're listening to right now and more than 60 others can be heard ad-free for as little as $4 a month by visiting fableandfolly.com slash plus. And now, the Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program is offering bonus content to Fable and Folly Plus supporters, including character creation and how-to-play episodes, plus cast and crew outtakes, all still entirely ad-free. Fable and Folly Plus. Sign up today at fableandfolly.com slash plus. So let's see. A dog gets killed. A dog gets reanimated. A dog gets a body part attached to it. The police guy like busts into the secret lab and gets killed by Herbert using the heart attack potion. Which was first demonstrated on the iguana. Yeah. That whole iguana plot is just so so weird. (laughs) Unnecessary. You had to explain. Well, you had to explain why it's different. You could just say, we've made advances in these eight months, you know? Sure, sure. But, you know. Yeah, there's so many weird, so many weird but parts. Then when, so, so he reanimates the lieutenant. When the lieutenant tries to kill Dan, Herbert cuts off uh, the lieutenant's arm. Lieutenant stumbles out of the basement, kills the poor dog, <laughs> and takes the dog's arm with him because it just, it was all violent and terrible. And poor Francesca, who brought the dog, is completely, like, you know, overcome with, with shock and grief. And Herbert's just like, hmm, well, waste not, what not, and takes the dog back downstairs <laughs> and puts the lieutenant arm on the dog. So now the dog, uh, I guess, at, 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 so shakes hands with Francesca at one point. Yeah. <laughs> like big sausagey fingers. At, yeah. at, at Francesca, uh, her motives become completely confused at this point because uh, she's like. Who could blame her? Like. <laughs> Dan's a monster. Her dog's dead. This policeman had already fed her a bunch of information about, like, about maybe Dan and Herbert are evil. And, like, 
and then she sees all this stuff that she can't explain, and then she's still kind of like an ally, and she's still kind of into Dan, and none of it makes sense anymore. But uh, but Dan's leaving, and Herbert barters and manipulates and says like, "Hey, I've got Meg's heart. Like it'll be because because every body part has a little bit of consciousness. We could make a new body. It could be Meg." And Dan is like switch flipped. He's like, "I'm in." <laughs> so. Then, then a bunch of Bride of Frankenstein stuff happens. They get a bunch of parts. The bride is created and then destroyed in very quick succession Just after, like, like because, because uh, you know, uh, women are jealous of men and hate each other. And then uh, they, this cat fight happens for no reason. And things get really, like, things get really increasingly sexist as the movie goes on. And then it just all kind of, like, tumbles, tumbles to pieces because, oh, right. Dr. Hill's head is there. He can control the Dead policeman him, yeah. and the three uh, reanimated people and like... Gets them to break him out of the morgue at the university. And forces uh, Dr. Graves to sew the bat, bat wings. wings on his head so he can fly around. Which like, there's a little part about that that I thought was really hilarious, which is like, when he's flying around later on in the house... <laughs> He insults West by calling him like a like an idiotic biped or yeah. something, which is hilarious. Like like like, by this point, Hill's totally into it. He's 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 adopted his his new identity as bat winged head monster and is just killable dead yeah. you know, head thing. Yeah, he's totally in for it. <laughs> yeah, which is like which is wild, and you're like, okay, where's this gonna go? I'm excited. And it doesn't go anywhere. Yeah, it's just revenge. Yeah, like there's a bunch of chaos at the house. They have to escape into the crypt. Oh, it turns out the crypt is full of quote unquote rejects because uh, as you've only kind of seen, Herbert has been casually, when he gets bored, attaching body parts, seeing what happens, and then throwing them away. And that's where all of Society Guy's material yes, yes. Uh, is. Quite, quite in abundance. <laughs> yeah. So you get this crazy sequence with a bunch of monstrosities. Mm-hmm. And then, then everything falls apart. There's a cave-in. Herbert and Dr. Hill are trapped in it. Dan and Francesca emerge, and the movie's over. Yep. Yeah, no epilogue, no nothing. Like, there's just, you know, it, it could have it stood to have maybe another 60 seconds to two minutes of mm-hmm. worth of something. Some resolution. Yeah. I mean, the, the first movie ends on that ambiguous note of is Herbert West and Dr. Hill, they're, they're fighting, and then the smoke goes off, and are they dead? But then you have that denouement of... Dan trying to bring his girlfriend back to life and failing, and then he succumbs to using the reagent. That's a horror movie ending. Here, yeah. this it felt like it ended mid-action scene, and nothing was resolved. Like it's 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 just kind of left there. Yeah, and in in a way, that aspect of the movie, like in terms of how how it kind of ends, like not not the abruptness of it, but just the overall like theme of it, I guess, actually does track to the book, which is basically you know Herbert's been doing all kinds of stuff creating uh, uh, monsters and then eventually they come for him and they like drag him through the wall through a tunnel that they've dug into his basement. Like that's pretty much the end of him uh, as he's dragged away and the uh, unnamed assistant runs for it. Although, you know, Herbert's much more of a bad guy in the original and uh, Dr. Hill doesn't really exist. There's a, um, there's an army captain who's like a surgeon who he works with during the war who kind of is what Dr. Hill becomes the kind of, you know, disembodied head and he actually in the in the story kind of is tracking down west and like is out to get him and like so it's kind of uh it ends pretty true to the book uh but as far as a movie like it's a pretty sloppy end especially after all the the various parts and 
And, you know, the film is called Bride of Reanimator, which implies both a sequel and then also an allusion to Bride of Frankenstein, or really more of a direct direct reference. And that component of it gets really weird as so many things are happening and it gets to a point where the attention is split three ways. Three separate things are occurring in the story. And the way that they cut between them, you realize like, oh, it's almost like no time has passed between these scenes, but these scenes are taking huge amounts of time. 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah, so so we're like, we're cutting to like, Dan and the bride like having some moments and Francesca fleeing all the like deadites out- outside and then Herbert being called inexplicably upstairs to find a box, slowly open the box and be surprised by a bat head that at first he doesn't realize <laughs> what it is. And, and then that plot stops. We do a bunch of other stuff as the Francesca and Dan things collide. And then Herbert gets reintroduced back in the picture. And then Dr. Hill is still unaccounted for until, boom, all of a sudden, there it is. It's very odd. But let's talk about The Bride, which is an interesting conundrum, the centerpiece of like the main action of the two characters, but also a completely insignificant component when actually assembled. Yeah, kind of like you said, where, where it's, you know, Herbert's kind of abusive relationship you know she's she, she's the child that nobody really wants <laughs> yeah and then weirdly like there's parts of this film that one could say oh it's sloppily written but then another hand like it also fits so perfectly and it always centers around Herbert and Dan's relationship Herbert is obsessed with making this bride because he gets to do a project with Dan and because he gets to because like because Dan is invested once again in the work that Herbert is passionate about and they're doing something together and it doesn't matter that he's doing this thing that he doesn't want to do. Herbert is still antagonistic towards any female presence in Dan's life. Like that is completely unchanged. And here he is creating like, and God created woman. Like like he's, (laughs) he's having these moments. He's still doing that, but only because it's a weird project that he can do with Dan. And, And Herbert is kind of, gross and weird about it like when he's hovering over the body explaining where all the parts came from which is a really cool scene but then there's like there's elements like she has the womb of a virgin and like that hasn't known the pleasures of flesh or something like that it's like okay yeah that's <laughs> herbert that's really gross but you wouldn't know because you don't understand this at all <laughs> you know he does then say after after he finishes labeling all these pieces he's like but you know what now Literally none of that matters. It's just dead tissue and we're going to give it all new meaning, like an etch-a-sketch of life, you know? So I'm like, but why did you have to be so weird like about it? Like, yeah. He's he's as detached as the rest of those body parts. I mean, and he, he talks it up and it's super important. It's super important. It's super important until it wrongs him. Yes. Until it steals Dan's attention away. Until the cat fight breaks out and everything. And then as everything's falling apart and they just need to get the fuck out of there, once again, running away from their problems, Herbert's like, it's just a bunch of dead flesh. <laughs> like, all meaning of this experiment well, she, 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 floor she about. rejected Herbert. She keeps saying, she right. looks at Dan and say, you made me. And Herbert's like, I made you. <laughs> you know, because at first he's like, we're going to do this. We're right. going to do this. But then once the bride actually shows up, it's like, well, I made you, you know, and I don't know. <laughs> the, the, the moment, the piece de resistance of this movie is where Herbert's about to apply the reagent to her heart. And Dan's like, no, let me do it. And Herbert's like, fuck yes. <laughs> God, I'm so hot for you right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then, of course, delicately dream, puts his hand on Dan's shoulder. Delicate, he dare not speak its name. <laughs> it is a strange energy. It is a strange, strange energy throughout the film. Ultimately, it's about the love of these two men. Uh, 
written in a way that I can't really figure out how much any individual was aware of what they were doing, aside from probably the actors. But <laughs> I don't know that the writers or directors had like, what did they think they were writing? If they just straight up knew what they were writing, then it becomes extremely interesting because of how misogynistic or sexist, like depending on the, the, the context, it is towards all other components. All female components of this movie are dubious. Hmm. I have no answers. <laughs> Speechless. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it, it would be a huge coincidence if it wasn't intentional on some level. It has to be somehow. I mean, like, just the way... Th- you know what? I'll, I'll give it this much benefit of the doubt. If it wasn't written to be that way, the actors chose to perform it that way. It's not subtle. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like the, the, if the two of them... Every every hand place, every every look at each other is an actor's choice. So either it was written and they're doing it the way it was written, or they chose to interpret it that way. Mm-hmm. Is it an in- intentional commentary of some kind or is it Finn and Poe you know where like <laughs> they decided to take it in that direction you know I don't know but it's fascinating to watch adjacent to this we mentioned last time that there were a couple reanimator sequels that didn't get made the most famous of which is House of Reanimator which I have a little bit more detail on there was actually a, a number of articles elaborating on it that it would have been about Dan is actively trying to reanimate Meg and gets pulled in by the White House to reanimate the president where he is reunited with Herbert to do this thing for king and country. (laughs) (laughs) And the president is uh, George W. Bush in like a later draft and it almost happened like, and apparently William H. Macy was in talks to be the president at some point. This thing was initially like a grain of an idea around the time of Bride of Reanimator and then got resurrected a little bit later, but didn't actually make it from the grave. One of those weird what ifs. I mean, I guess that's kind of on par with uh, uh, Jeffrey Combs almost ending up the captain of the Starship Enterprise. What, on, on Enterprise? Jeffrey Combs was in the running to be Riker. Oh. And originally, Patrick Stewart was only going to do Picard for a year, and then Riker was going to take over. Huh. So in a slightly different timeline, yeah. Combs got the role over Frakes, <laughs> and then Picard steps down, and then we've got Captain Riker, played by Jeffrey Combs. Stranger things have happened, but, uh, <laughs> you know, if that had happened, we probably wouldn't have gotten Bride of Reanimator, and in fact, it was almost not Jeffrey Combs playing Herbert West. Which I can't imagine that. <laughs> it was a, only a, a, a scheduling conflict that got worked out is the only reason he is here in this movie, and he is, well, he or he and Dan and, and their, their thing, the rest of this movie could exist and it'd be campy and weird, but it would not be worth half a damn without them. Yeah. It's perhaps no coincidence that horror movie sequels in general are a lot like the uh, literary format of The Exquisite Corpse, where someone writes something and then another person writes something else with no communication between the two of them, and it just keeps going on and on and on until it abstractly ends. And the sort of dedication to continuing something that someone liked one time, Nowhere is it so infectious as it is in horror films because horror doesn't take itself so seriously that when it falls apart and gets funky and directions shift wildly, there's not the same kind of criticism. Yeah, I mean, look, look at other franchises. Jason takes Manhattan, you know? Like, <laughs> it's, it's, it was so far down that line, and that wasn't even the end of the entire series. So there's precedent. It is okay for things to get silly and weird, and in this case, this one is only just ever so slightly 
shuffled off course from the first one. It feels pretty authentic. It's just, it's just a shame that it couldn't get all of its pieces to turn into something. I feel like it's almost there. Like the bride, I'm telling you. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> I wish that she had had more purpose in the end, but really it was just an attempt to sew their relationship back together and, and it didn't work out, and then we don't, yeah, we just, mm, I don't know. It's, I mean, in the actual Bride of Frankenstein movie, the bride's only in it for like three minutes. You know, it's like yeah. titular character on every movie poster, iconic everything. Basically, ha- this bride has more screen time, you know? Like, yeah. Speaking of that, that's a, kind of another aspect of this movie that I, I noticed is a big difference from the first one, which Reanimator itself is is definitely, it's a uh, a retelling of Frankenstein, just kind of like it's like weird science pulp Frankenstein. This one leans into that so much, so much more heavily than uh, the first one. It, it literally only uses two sound effects for lightning, which is the infamous Castle Thunder <laughs> sound effect from like the 1930s. So it, it was a definite choice. You have, there's so many lightning sound effects. They only used those two back and forth, <laughs> alternating. And when you listen to it again, you hear, you know, I was, I was, I was keeping the ear out for it because as soon as they did it the first time, I'm like, huh, there, that's, that's, that's the Frankenstein sound effect. Yeah. And then they just kept using it over and over and over and over <laughs> and over and over for the rest of the movie, which, you know, that's the point. Will we go beyond Reanimator? I'm scared too. I'm, I'm kind of scared too as well, but I'm also have a morbid curiosity. We're this close. We're this close to achieving it. <laughs> Perfection. <laughs> I what I mean, what what is a reanimator movie like without Dan? How, if at all, do they attempt to reconcile what happens at the end of this movie? Oh, I'm sure it's just Herbert's doing. He his got thing. away, right? Yeah, no, no explanation. Herbert's just doing his thing in some horrible place. He was only <laughs> mostly dead. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give Jeffrey Combs a chance. Just like uh, he's got that same Evil Dead energy that you know Bruce Campbell. I'll, I'll watch him in anything. But without him convincing Dan to do something terrible, will the magic be there? Yeah, that's true. As long well, as he's got someone good to play off. I've intentionally, uh, I, I know nothing. I, I've kept myself in the dark about that film. It's from the early 2000s, which I don't think bodes particularly well. Yeah. But maybe we'll see someday. What I can tell you is this. The next piece of Lovecraftian cinema we're going to be watching is John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness. And that will wrap up our month of Lovecraftian cinema And we are all very grateful to you for being here, listening along with us. So join us next week, won't you? You foolish bipeds. (laughs) (laughs) Kat and Luke did indeed go beyond Reanimator. And you can hear their sordid journey into those uncharted depths for yourself if you join us on Patreon or Supporting Cast. In fact, I believe they've sent over a clip. We get a full-on penis versus rat battle. Most of it done in puppeted silhouette with kung fu sound effects. Oh, this movie is so weird. I would not recommend it to anybody. But by the end of it, it got so crazy that I'm glad I watched it. It just takes everything so fucking far. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, (laughs) wow. Well... Let Kat and Luke watch this movie so you don't have to as part of our expanded arcane advent of Lovecraftian cinema over on Patreon and supporting cast. Just head to CthulhuMystery.com support and delve into our hour-long discussions of Dagon, Beyond Reanimator, Glorious, and more. Not to mention episodic explorations of the Call of Cthulhu Mystery program. Now, 
you'll better watch out because next week we're getting gnawed upon like so much figgy pudding when we find ourselves in the mouth of madness. <laughs> I think I'm a loop. Anyway, here's the music. Thanks for listening to the Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program. This series is made possible thanks to the generous support of our producers, Amber Devereaux, Becky Scott Bailey, Bob Hogan, CB, Joe Tank Ricciardelli, Josh King, McDribble Deluxe, Miola MK86, Patrick Webster, Sean Hutchinson, Sean T. Red, and our executive Patreon producers, Big Bad Shadow Man, Marcus Larson, and Jamieson Malone. You can join the team at CthulhuMystery.com slash support. And if you enjoy this podcast broadcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or Spotify. The Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program is recorded and produced in Orlando, Florida, and Louisville, Kentucky, on land stolen from their indigenous people, the Timucua and Seminole, and Shawnee, Cherokee, Osage, Seneca Iroquois, Miami, Hopewell, and Adena. Acknowledgement of the first people of these lands and the lasting repercussions of colonization is just the beginning of the restorative work that is necessary. Through awareness, we can prompt allyship, action, and ultimately decolonization. For links to aid indigenous efforts and to learn more about the First Nations of the land where you live, visit CthulhuMystery.com slash landback. Our original score is composed and performed by Ryan McQuinn and Mike McQuinn of Neon Dolphin, home for all your custom music needs and more, NeonDolphinMusic.com. This has been the Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program. Good night. Omniverse. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish. You found the heart! She found a key to the heart. On the quest of a lifetime, three best friends take on a harrowing journey. Your mind and body will be tested in these upcoming weeks, as well as your heart. Where more is at stake than a gift from the gods, being with Albina and I is going to be... weird? Not bad weird, just, uh, different. Everything's different on the water. When new friends meet, you have an office? Where do you think I do all the pirate business? Pirates have business? It's a parchment nightmare. And family secrets are revealed. We could be twins. Yes, I've noticed. This young crew of adventurers will learn what it takes to complete the deadly journey to the heart. It's not like an island could set a trap for us. What? Lightning fog? Are you kidding me? But is getting what they want worth losing what they have? I was happy with you and Charlie. Was? Look at us! How could I be? Journey to the Heart. Now available everywhere you listen to podcasts. Tune in each week and vote for where you think the story should go next. Whoa!